Okay, well, we're going to begin tonight our second lesson in this new uh, baptism Bible study series on Sunday nights. And specifically tonight, we're going to study baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is another extremely important form of baptism the New Testament mentions. And we definitely want to talk about it before we get to water baptism. That's still coming up. We just began a study on really what the Bible says about baptism in general. And we've already found out a lot, a lot more than you may have thought, different types of baptism. So we're exploring them all. That's our goal. And know, this notion, though, of baptism in the Holy Spirit has some contention to it, namely that not all Christians understand baptism in the Holy Spirit in the same way. And so we're going to need to carefully study the scriptures, see what it means, and learn how it's meant to impact our lives in the church. That's what we're going to try and do tonight. But I have to recap what we went through last week, especially because, as you'll see, baptism in the Holy Spirit is intimately related to baptism in Christ. And that was our first subject, baptism in Christ. Baptism in Christ can be thought of as really the most significant form of baptism. It's the most real baptism there is. That's the baptism that actually saves you, this union with Christ. Water baptism is merely the symbol of baptism in Christ. So we spent last week studying how baptism is used as a key metaphor, really to speak of our salvation, which comes by our union with Christ. We're not saved by our works, our efforts, our righteousness, but Christ's. His perfect righteousness, his atoning death on the cross, his substitute sacrifice, his resurrection life, that's what saves us. We don't do anything. We're just receiving the benefits of his atonement, right? That's how we are made right with God. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. It's the essence of the gospel. But how do we actually benefit from Christ's work? I mean, Jesus died on the cross, but not everyone is saved. Not everyone is reconciled to God. Not all are forgiven. So how do we actually partake in his work such that we receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. How does that like apply to me and count for me? And you'll answer by faith. And that is the correct answer. But last week we learned more precisely, like what does faith actually accomplish? When you come to believe in Jesus with true saving faith, you receive all the saving benefits of his atonement. But that happens. The new Testament describes by being placed in Christ. And so this, it's a grand metaphor in the New Testament, this union with Christ. You, you receive all the benefits of his work by union with Christ, and that comes by faith. Romans 6, Colossians 2, term this also baptism in Christ. You're baptized in Christ. And that's what we studied. We learned that at a base level, baptism communicates identification. Remember that? We'll see that again. Baptism at a, just a very general level communicates identification. So when you believe you're baptized in Christ, you identify with Christ. But this is identification to the extreme where we are, we're even united to Christ. We saw that in Galatians as well. It's kind of like when Peter Pan sewed, or rather when Wendy sewed Peter's, Peter Pan's shadow back onto him. We have kids, so we're watching that movie all the time, right? So, you know, his shadow escapes and is running around the room and catches it and she sews his shadow back onto him. In a way, it's like we're just sewed to Christ. We're knit to Christ. We're united to Christ such that now God sees us in Christ. Now, surely there's some mystery to this, but we can say what Scripture says. 
Namely that, well, his death becomes our death. His death to sin, his victory over sin, that becomes our death to sin and our victory over sin, Romans 6. His resurrection to new life becomes our resurrection to new life, Colossians 2. And it's through this union that all the saving benefits of his atonement flow downhill to us. That's how we receive them. No more biblical illustration of this would be the vine and the branches, as Christ himself put it in John 15. And that's a, a multifaceted illustration. We can use it to describe many things. But as you know, Christ is the vine. And the vine is the source and the supplier of all life and vitality for the branches. Before salvation, though, you can really picture us like a, a dead branch. A branch that's not even attached to the vine. It's already just dead. It's shriveled. It has no life in it. And we had no life in us. But the first thing that happens is God supernaturally brings us to life. That, that dead, shriveled branch just comes alive and becomes a living branch. And through regeneration, through the effectual call, God makes us alive. We become the living branch. And in that very moment, as we behold and believe in Jesus, God fuses us to the vine. So in some way, you know, just attaches us to the vine. We become united to the vine. And now all the life-giving resources of the vine just flow to us, just by nature. You're a branch attached to the vine, just by nature. It's going to receive the, the life. Life eternal flows to us. And it's this relationship that explains how we receive the saving benefits of Christ's death. And also, by the way, and that's really more of the context of John 15, explains how we receive the sanctifying power of his, of his work. Because the vine also enables the branches, once they're knit together, once they're fused, once they abide in the branch, or rather in the vine, the, the vine enables the branches to grow and bear fruit. That's the consequence of coming alive and being attached to the vine. Well, now you're supposed to grow and bear fruit. In John 15, Jesus summed up this relationship between the vine and the branches with a key word, single word, abide. This is an abiding relationship. That's a very intimate term in the ancient Greek world, meaning just to dwell together with. And it's a mutual abiding. He says all over, we abide in him and he abides in us. That's that's the source of our new and eternal life. It's not us. We're not special. We didn't do anything. It's his work, his person applied to us through this intimate union and somewhat mystical union with Christ. Now, hopefully you're you're tracking with me. Last week, we kind of covered all this and we learned how baptism in Christ, well, that in effect, that's the new living branch being fused to the vine. It's baptism in Christ. It's a salvation reality where we are united or knit to Christ. And so we identify with his death and resurrection. Now today, we're going to learn a corresponding and complementary truth. The scripture adds that this work of uniting us to Christ is actually accomplished by the Holy Spirit. You might think of the, the Holy Spirit as the glue that forever binds us to the Savior. He's the glue, so to speak, that fuses the branch to the vine. The Spirit is one who makes this abiding link with Jesus possible. And the benefits of salvation, they were gained by the Son on our behalf, but they're actually applied to us and and made real in our lives. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit, by God the Spirit. 
And so it's not surprising, therefore, to learn that the New Testament speaks of another baptism. It's called baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it really corresponds to baptism in Christ. These two baptisms are really like two sides of the same coin, you might say. They always go together. They always complement one another. As you are immersed into the Holy Spirit, so to speak, so your union with Christ is accomplished. It's also not surprising to learn that in that same upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, where he's instructing the disciples on the night before his death, he gives them that vine analogy, right? In that same upper room discourse, several times Jesus just dumps on them some huge teaching on the coming of the Spirit. Finally, as he's ready to leave, he really unloads on them a, a, a large dose of teaching on the coming of another helper, another of the same kind, the Holy Spirit, who will be with them, dwell with them, abide with them, and, and so forth. The Holy Spirit is soon going to come upon them, and he's going to bring to fruition all the realities of the new covenant that Jesus was about to inaugurate with his blood. That was always God's promise, by the way, that the Spirit would be the one who would bring this to reality. And the Spirit's role then in applying salvation is critical. It's something we need to understand, and it's referred to as baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's not all, though. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's, it's set apart in a little bit, in a little way, because it has a special nuance, baptism in the Holy Spirit. The scripture teaches that it's through this baptism that we also enter the body of Christ, which is the church. And Jesus died to redeem not just one person, but a whole body, a bride. And composed of many redeemed individuals. And they're not just fused to the vine, but they're also fused to one another. That, uh, that this plan for a new covenant community was not just to, to save an individual person or a bunch of just random individuals, but also to form them into this unified body. That they all become one. And we find that's the work of the Holy Spirit that does that. The Holy Spirit forms that body. He's like the glue that keeps the body together. You might think that as the Holy Spirit unites a single branch to the vine. Well, so also he's uniting that branch to every other branch that's been united to the vine. And so the Spirit's work is spoken of as the means of our entrance into the body of Christ, which is the church. And that has obvious but significant implications for the unity of the church. That's a huge deal we'll we'll try and get to at the end. This is important stuff. You know, we're dealing with just fundamental salvation reality topics here. The Bible reveals these for a reason. So we're going to study now what the Bible says about this spirit baptism. Just trying to get it right and then really take to heart how it's meant to affect how we live as the church. Like that that sounds like that's going to apply to the church. And that's us. We're, We're a local church. I think we better study baptism in the spirit. So let's do that now. We're going to trace spirit baptism expected, spirit baptism experienced, and then spirit baptism explained. And that really traces the, the how spirit baptism is even revealed in the New Testament. Expected, experienced, and then explained. You can turn to Matthew 3 if you want to follow along. Spirit baptism expected. And as you open the New Testament, you find The Holy Spirit's being spoken of a bunch. John the Baptist shows up. He's baptizing people. 
But John himself makes a contrast between what, with what he's doing and what the Messiah is going to do. And he already forms this expectation of another kind of baptism. It's not like his baptism. It's, it's a spirit baptism. It's a quick, simple reference, but it's Matthew 3, 11 through 12. It's as parallel in the other Gospels, but we'll just read Matthew's. Matthew 3, 11 through 12. This is John speaking. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we have this statement made by John the Baptist in the Gospels, paralleled in the Gospels. Now this baptism of fire, we'll talk about that next week, so just hold off on that one. Already though, from the context, it's pretty obvious, it's talking about judgment. You see how verse 12 sets up a clear contrast between spirit baptism and fire baptism. And we're going to learn, well, fire baptism is akin to judgment. Spirit baptism is akin to salvation. But hopefully you can already see all those whom Jesus baptizes with the spirit, they are likened to the wheat gathered into the barn, a.k.a. the saved ones. And we're also going to study John's baptism more. That has a lot of significance to it. But also notice already just in preview here, the contrast between John's baptism and and then Christ's coming baptism. John's baptism symbolizes repentance, turning from the old ways, returning to God, like we learned even this morning, right? Preparing the way for the Messiah when he comes. But Christ's baptism will be with the Holy Spirit. And that will not just be symbolic. That will be a saving baptism, an effectual baptism. Symbolized by water, water baptism doesn't save you, but Christ baptism saves you. Holy Spirit baptism is just synonymous with salvation. He's talking about this is going to be an effectual baptism. This is the Messiah who comes after. He's actually going to save you. As opposed to John is just making people identify back with God. That was John's baptism, identifying with God once again. But this immersion into the Holy Spirit we're going to find it's really nothing less than a promise of well, salvation, regeneration, new birth. It's no coincidence that all over the New Testament, it associates the Holy Spirit with salvation and new birth terminology, like Titus 3.5. You can look that up on your own. But we're already, this is just, it's a simple statement. John doesn't say much about it, but we're already led to believe that this salvation that the Messiah is going to bring is, it's going to be applied by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to be involved somehow. Now we need to keep going. It's, just, it's a quick reference, this expectation in, in the Gospels. That's really all that's said about it. A few references by John the Baptist that the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Gospels don't explain it, but that's okay. We're just talking about the expectation. We're going to get to the explanation. But one more passage. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Another verse of expectation. Not an explanation yet, but an expectation of spirit baptism. This is after the cross, after the resurrection, right before the ascension. 
He gathers his disciples, Acts 1 verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized you with water, or for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Christ himself references what what John himself was saying, and he makes clear that this promised spirit baptism that that John spoke of, Christ is aware of it, and it's going to happen pretty soon. It's about to happen, not many days. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's coming. Pretty clear statement that it's it's near. You you, uh, again see how it contrasts with John's baptism. It is not the same as John's baptism. This is spirit baptism. Notice, of course, the place of this spirit baptism in redemptive history. This spirit baptism could only take place after the cross and after the resurrection. And why is that? Because the spirit comes to apply Christ's work, his finished work, to believers, to who would be new covenant believers. And this obviously had to happen after his finished work. Christ had to ascend, after which his plan was to send down the helper who's going to do a lot of things, but among which is to indwell, empower uh, believers. This is part of the new covenant promise which God inaugurated in his blood. The new covenant was always attached to the promise of God's spirit being poured out, not just on the kings, not just on prophets and leaders, but on, on all, of the, all of God's people, all true believers. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Everyone will receive the spirit in the new covenant community. That's a key difference with the old covenant community. We'll talk about that later when we get to water baptism. More needs to be said, though, about this promise of spirit baptism. It's just the expectation. A few verses build the expectation, the anticipation that, okay, something new is coming. That's different from John. Christ has come. He died. He rose. He's talked about the spirit. The spirit's going to come. What does that even mean? What's he going to do? Let's turn from the expectation of spirit baptism to the experience of spirit baptism. Just keep going here. So secondly, spirit baptism experience. Let's, let's read about the coming of the spirit and see what happens. See what it means. So stay in Acts chapter one. You look at verse eight. He says a little bit later before he ascends. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So he he sneaks a little something in there. tells them that when the Spirit comes, clearly in connection with this baptism, they're going to receive power. So some power is going to be involved. The power of God also leads us to believe what's the purpose of this power? To witness, to enable them to be powerful witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see fulfilled in, well, the next chapter, Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. You recall, uh, well, no, let's, let's read first. Let's read Acts chapter 2, you know, 1 through 13. Let's just read this. Now, before we talk about it, this is what happens shortly thereafter. You know, they replaced Judas with another apostle. And then chapter 2, verse 1. 
this I believe was, you know, 10 days after the ascension. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now these were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, or rather it says now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse six, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. So let's talk about this here. The Spirit comes upon the apostles. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Connection with chapter 1 is clear. This is that first baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about that. It comes with a sign in this instance that they speak in tongues. The people around them hear all sorts of human languages. They hear their own languages being spoken. The apostles, they're not just blabbering. They're, they're preaching. Verse 11, they're speaking the mighty deeds of God just in all these new languages. And so the people, they're hearing the mighty deeds of God in their languages. It's a profound sign, but they don't know what it means. There's confusion. They, they wonder, verse 12, you know, what does this mean? Without explanation, signs can be interpreted in many different ways. Some even suppose that these guys are just drunk. They've just had too much wine. They're just, who knows what's going on. It's a bizarre experience, this filling, this baptism in the Holy Spirit. It starts off bizarre. What does it mean? Well, we too need it explained, right? We have the expectation in the Gospels. We have the experience of it in Acts. We need an explanation ourselves, like what is going on here? What does this mean? That's our question as well. And so let's turn to really the, the biggest section, spirit baptism explained, or the explanation of spirit baptism. And see, well, how scripture itself explains the significance of this event and of this baptism. And you recall that after this, Peter preaches, right? verse 14 following. And in his message, he affirms that what the people witnessed was indeed the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came in power for the sake of witness. Like Jesus promised, what they were seeing was the power of God, a supernatural sign that they might witness now Christ. And the Spirit's power is always meant to be a witness to the, the work and the person of Christ. So Peter is going to fill us in on some of the significance of Pentecost. 
Let's read. We're going to keep reading 14 through 21, Acts chapter 2. A long section. Just, you know, follow along. Do your best to, to read with me. Acts chapter 2 and then verse 14. It says, but Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. But these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Then he quotes, Verse 17, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. Now I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do we learn here? Peter lets the crowds know, first off, these guys aren't drunk. What they were witnessing was actually the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, they're witnessing the creation of a new body, a new people of God, a new community, a new covenant community. It's after all the Holy Spirit who creates the body of Christ, the church. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit in this first instance came with a visible element, a sign, speaking in tongues. And so the apostles spoke in tongues in this instance. And like 1 Corinthians 14, 22 says, Tongues are a sign not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 22. And on this occasion, this was a sign that pointed to the apostles as the authorized spokesman for God. That God was doing something new here. This was, this was a change. This was a rift between Old Testament and New Testament. Old Covenant and New Covenant. Things were going to change. God was going to reveal some new things And this sign was meant that the people had, well, you better listen up. What these guys are about to say is going to be from God. Like all of the signs we see in the New Testament, they authenticated spokesmen, the apostles and prophets as having come from God. The people better listen up. Like Peter says in verse 14, give heed to my words. He's going to lay it out for them, what, what this is all about, what's happening here. He explains to them that they are witnessing the coming of the Holy Spirit Per God's prophesied plan, right? this new covenant plan that, that's been around for a while. It's in the prophets. He quotes Joel to them. It references the inauguration of the last days, which refers to the final age before the fullness of the kingdom comes. The, the last days have been inaugurated with Christ's death and resurrection. This final age before the end. And that age is marked by the pouring out of the spirit on all people. All, all believers, all members of this new covenant community, not just the kings or the prophets, everyone, even to the, the slave, will receive God's spirit. The spirit has come to create a new community, a new people of God, the church, in these last days. And they're marked by being indwelt by the, the same spirit 
that had just come on the apostles. What's the defining feature of this new body? It's the common confession of Jesus as Lord. The defining feature of this new community, it's the common confession of Jesus as Lord. One enters this new covenant, spirit-filled community, not by birth, not by lineage. Just being born a Jew is not enough. You have to believe and, and confess Jesus as Lord. And Peter adds, you see at verse 21 from Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the Old Testament, that reads, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. But now that, that name has been joined to another. Indeed, Yahweh incarnate. Jesus is God incarnate. And now the name is Jesus. All people need to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. This is a fundamental, this is a huge shift. They're still monotheistic, but you see what's being revealed that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. He's a perfect revelation of God, and you need to believe on him to be saved. Look what Peter says in verse 32. He keeps going. We'll skip some for time, but he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then jump down to verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37 says, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's more, but I think for now that, that should suffice. Peter, in his sermon, he, he testifies of the person and the work of Jesus, to which they have witness that this Messiah has come. The Lord has come. His name was Jesus. That's the name that you must believe on to be saved. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He, he preaches in this sermon. And now you must call on him. He says, know for certain that God has made this Jesus, this Jewish carpenter, this, this guy Jesus. God has made him Lord and Christ. He is Lord and Christ and Messiah. And to be saved, they must repent of their sins. They must call upon the name of Jesus. Then they must be water baptized in the name of Jesus. Demonstrating their identification with Jesus. And then they too will receive that same Holy Spirit. They're going to be brought into this new community, the church. That, that the Spirit was right then starting to create. Now verse 38, talking about water baptism. We will talk about that plenty when we get to water baptism. So we're going to leave that for now. But for now, understand the significance of Pentecost. Especially as it relates to spirit baptism. That God was doing something new. He was creating a new body of believers, a new people of God. And they're all flying under the, ban- the banner of Jesus is Lord. It used to be any Jew would say, you know, Yahweh is Lord. And now that we're going to say Jesus is Lord. And, and both are true. Because Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, God with us. 
And accordingly, the Holy Spirit has come as promised to convict the world of sin and righteousness, to open the eyes of the blind that they might see Jesus as Lord. Is it not the Spirit who regenerates the person that they might behold the glory of God in the face of Christ? 2 Corinthians 4. Or is it not the Holy Spirit who enables people to say, Jesus is Lord? 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who enables that saving confession. The Spirit has come. It's his regenerating work that enables that confession. And it's also the work of the Spirit that forms a new community united around this confession. That the the Messiah has come. That the Lord has come. His name is Jesus and we're his people. You put all this together and the, the Spirit baptism that Jesus promised the apostles, it's akin to the work of the Holy Spirit to create the church, this body of believers. It's the Holy Spirit who creates the church. Then he does this by uniting us to Christ, the head, and thereby he unites all of us to one another. We're all branches or united to the vine, and that's the primary union, but just by, as a consequence, that's going to unite us to every other branch on the vine. That's an intended consequence, uh, the special union of the body to mix metaphors with the, the body and the head. And put it another way, baptism in the spirit that Christ was talking about in chapter one, this immersion in the spirit. Well, you can say it means identification with the spirit. And that's akin to identifying with the new covenant the spirit came to apply. And this means you're going to be united to the head of the covenant, which is Christ. You're going to be united to the community of the covenant, which is the church. The spirit baptism translates into identification with Christ and his church. Just kind of there you boil it real down. Spirit baptism translates into identification with Christ as Lord and his church who confess him as Lord. And this understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit is confirmed later in the epistles. The gospels and Acts, they, they speak of spirit baptism. They, they don't explain it a lot except really here in Acts 2, of course. A direct explanation comes in the epistles. There's one key verse that helps us understand even further and really make it plain, spirit baptism. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. You can turn there. 1 Corinthians 12, really verse 13. Paul is writing to the Corinthians at a very early date, around AD 55, And he gives them a little window into what baptism in the spirit signifies. Throughout this chapter, he's talking on spiritual gifts. That as Christ ascended, he sent down the spirit. And with the spirit, he gave gifts to men. And so he's talking about spiritual gifts. And though they're different, the members of the body are different. The gifts are different. He's also making clear that there's just one body. And so he's also stressing the fundamental unity Of the body of Christ. You know, all these different people, different gifts. Don't forget, there's just one body, and we need each other for the body to function. That's kind of the context. But look at verse 12 and 13. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And he's just one body with many members. And then he says, verse 13, for By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. What's he teaching in verse 12? Well, it's, it's plain. The oneness of the church. The oneness of the body of Christ. You, you can see that. We see how he supports that in verse 13. He references our baptism into the body of Christ by the one spirit. He's displaying the oneness of the body. How does Paul going to prove or display the oneness of the body of Christ? Well, you're baptized, right? You're baptized by the spirit. There's one spirit. And everyone he baptized, everyone he brings in, they're put into one body. What does baptism of the spirit accomplish in verse 13? Well, it places us into one body. It's not that complicated, right? It just places us into one body. Again, the result of this baptism is that word identification. Identification with what? In spirit baptism, we come to identify with Christ as our Lord, as our head. He's the head of the body, so we identify with the head. And thereby, we identify with everyone else who has Jesus as their head. And that's the one body. So again, this is effectively the creation of the church. We identify with the new covenant and the community of the new covenant, which is the church. You can kind of think of the Holy Spirit like a brick layer. And one by one, he takes a discarded rock and he changes it, transforms it into a brick. The work of regeneration. It's now a brick. And this brick then confesses Jesus as Lord And so the spirit then takes the brick, slaps a little mortar on it, and places it into this temple that he's building. So one more brick goes in, and another brick goes in. Another person believes, another brick goes in. One by one, he's he's placing each brick into this spiritual temple, which has Christ as its high priest. And each brick is then united to Christ and also united to every other brick. Kind of stealing a metaphor from 1 Peter 2, but it works, right? It makes sense. And the special emphasis of this spirit baptism, therefore, that that Paul is really using here, is the intended consequence of the unity of all believers. The unity of all believers. That's huge. We're meant to be one people. You can see in verse 12 and 13, there's no exceptions. Every single person who confesses Jesus as Lord receives this baptism and is placed into the the body of Christ. There's no concept of a a Christian who's outside of the body. In the new covenant, like you're saved, you're a Christian, but you're not yet in the body of Christ. That's completely foreign to the New Testament. makes no sense. There's no category for any Christian outside the body, outside this spirit baptism. There's There's no place for that. It doesn't matter. See, there's no exceptions. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Greek. doesn't matter if they're slave or free. Galatians 3 adds, doesn't matter if they're male or female. Today, we would say, doesn't matter if they're black or white. And Paul says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Emphasis on the word all. All of us, by one spirit, every single one of us was placed into this one body. He says, we all were made to drink of one spirit. There's no room for exceptions here. Everyone who's in Christ, everyone who truly calls on Jesus as Lord, has been baptized by the Spirit and placed into, immersed into the the body of the Spirit-created church. This makes very clear that if you're a Christian, if you confess Jesus as Lord, if you're part of the new covenant community, the church, you have received this Spirit baptism. This takes place immediately at conversion 
like I said, akin to baptism in Christ. There's some further implications. You know, this new covenant community that God was creating was no longer going to be an ethnocentric people. Like in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people were, were, was fundamentally ethnically defined. And God still has a, a place for Israel as a nation among nations, but his plan now is for all the nations to be blessed in the Messiah and to be knit together in this body. And the church is just all the redeemed from all the nations who confess Jesus as Lord. That was a radical truth for these Jews, why the New Testament makes a deal out of it. Like Ephesians 2, it's pretty big. Um, we t- kind of take it for granted because we're pretty much all Gentiles, but it's that the, the radical unity of Jew and Gentile in the ancient world was huge. That's the supernatural unity of the Spirit. How, how else can you explain that unity? A Jew and Gentile coming together in one body as brother and sister, that's of the Lord. Talk about that in a little bit, actually. With baptism in the Holy Spirit, though, it's, it's not actually that complicated of a subject. It highlights the, the promise coming of the Holy Spirit per the new covenant to create a new people of God who are united to Jesus as Lord and thereby united to one another. Baptism of the Spirit takes place at salvation and it marks one's entrance into the body of Christ, which is the church. Now I have in my notes here a a good few pages of a little bit of a detour because I do want to talk about the fact that At least in the past 100 years, not all Christians would agree with how we just define the baptism of the Spirit. And namely, Pentecostals. They're called Pentecostals because they interpret Pentecost differently and they have a different view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They figured it's worth at least talking about and addressing why we do disagree and differ. We're going to save it for next week because it's just too long and we're going to run out of time. So we'll we'll include that next week with just the, the Pentecostal understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit and, uh, and our differences with it for your edification. It's out there and it's, it's with uh, Pentecostals and many charismatics will take that view. So we'll talk about it next week. We're just going to run out of time for now. With the rest of our time, I think it's more worthwhile just to get to some of the implications and application of baptism in the Holy Spirit. So let's do that now as we wrap up. You know, some of the implications and an application of this spirit baptism. I'll give you a couple. And the first, I might just call, you know, deep worship and holy living. And I put those together on purpose. You know, deep worship and holy living as really an implication or even application of baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we learn, you know, this spirit baptism, that's what affects our union with Christ. This spirit unites us to Christ as head, whereby all the, the benefits of his atonement flow to us. But, you know, this spirit-enabled union with Christ goes even further. Several times, again, in that upper room discourse, several times Jesus promised that both he and the Father would abide in and with believers. And that they would abide in and with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's this really mind-blowing promise of this mutual union with the triune God. I'll just, one example, John 17, 20 through 21, I'll just read it for you. It's in the high priestly prayer. Christ is praying for future disciples. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, his present disciples, but for those also who believe in me 
through their word. So all future disciples. And he prays that they may all be one. Then he says, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. No doubt, there's, there's some mystery to that. Like, what does that mean? This, this union, this mutual abiding relationship of believers with the triune God that we would now, in the same way as the Father dwells in and with the Son, that we would come to dwell in and with the triune God. Like, what does that mean to say that the Father, Son, and Spirit abide in us and we abide in them? I cannot give you a full answer. There's some mystery there. I'm still understanding that. I think the thought is too great for us to really think of what does it mean to mutually abide with the God of the universe. But we can take away a few things. We can say just what scripture says plainly, right? And that as we are baptized in the spirit at salvation, this we know the spirit is the one who affects this union with the father and with the son. That the sun went up, the spirit came down, and he's the one who enables this abiding relationship with the father and the son. And at the very least, we can say it means this, God is really with us. That especially now for a, a, a huge kind of shift between the old and new covenants, that God is with his people in a new way, in a special way. This is the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. It's even further, God in us. At the very least, we can say, look, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're with us always. He dwells with us. We dwell with him through the Spirit. That, that's, a, that's a deep thought. You're, you're just going in the ocean, and you're not going to be able to dive to the bottom of that. But it, it's worth thinking about. And at the very least, I think that thought, as you meditate on it, should lead us to, like I said, deeper worship and holier living. Right? deeper worship and holier living. We should really daily walk and worship as if we're in the presence of God. Because we are, right? Wouldn't that, like if, if Jesus just showed up here, like, you know, have a little reverence, it would, it'd be a pretty big deal. Is he not with us? Do you not have the spirit? Have you been baptized in the spirit? He, he is with you. I remember reading uh, back when I was, before I was married, there's a book, I think Joshua Harris, like why, why I Kissed Dating Goodbye, something like that, an old dating book. He's like against dating, he's pro-courtship, like why I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And uh, it was a big deal when we were in college, all of us were single and, you know, trying to figure all that stuff out. But I remember him giving this illustration in that book of how he was not dating, but courting his wife. And they had just a vow of uh, purity, amen to that, or that they wouldn't even kiss and they would, uh, he would picture when he was tempted just to be just sexually involved with her before marriage. He'd picture like, what if Jesus were our third wheel on this date? Would you do that? Would you cross those bounds if he were here? Because he is. He's, he's there. God is with you. He's seeing. He's, he's there watching. He's, he's there. That's meant to have a sanctifying effect, a purifying effect. You're always in the presence of the Lord. In fact, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, that's where if you join yourself to a prostitute, you're sinning against the Holy Spirit, right? 
that that's behind that command to not not be sexually impure because you're now a, a vessel of God. That's meant to make us pure. That's meant to drive us to and convict us to holy living, to use our bodies now as vessels for God. And we still have the flesh, but that that's our goal. That's our our uh, our target. I want to to be holy because God is with me and in me. It's meant to have a sanctifying effect. It also means we can depend on God wherever we are. You're, you're never alone. His promise to not leave you or forsake you, that's especially true in the new covenant. That we can call on God anytime, any place. And granted, the Old Testament believer could, but it's just, it's in some way, it's, it's special. God is now in us and with us. We can say more than David. That though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because God is with us. He could say that. We can say that more, I believe, because of the realities we have of the indwelling spirit, the spirit baptism. We can say that more. Would you agree? And therefore we should. You know, because of our spirit baptism, God is with us. It's a deep thought. I'll leave it to you to meditate on further. This abiding, mutually abiding relationship with God. At the very least, can we say, you know, deeper worship holier living. I'll leave that to you to think on. One more application would be obviously unity. We have to mention unity of the church. And this really is the most apparent and the most direct application of this spirit baptism. It's kind of like one of the main points. Being united to Christ, the head, we are thereafter united to the body, you know, everyone else who's united to the head. That's an intended consequence. And like we just read in John 17, It was always God's plan for this church to be one people. And that unity is just supernatural. Like we humans, after the fall, we divide over everything. Right? Just look in our society. Of course, languages, we divide over languages. We'll talk next week. That's kind of a big deal with speaking in tongues, really overturning Babel. Save it for next week. But we divide over languages, ethnicity, just gender, culture, food preferences, you name it. We're going to divide over everything. To have a body of people who are just so different, every nation, every language, no matter, you know, slave, free, male, female, just any difference, you're all in one room now, one group. In the world, not going to last. There's no way that that group is going to stick together. In our flesh, we're selfish, we divide. The church, as it sticks together, proves Christ is Lord. I mean, there's no other explanation for the unity of the church. Again, think back to the the early church, Jew-Gentile. That shouldn't have worked. There's no way Jew-Gentile come together in in one body. You can take that and run with it. But look, as Christ prayed in John 17, the plan was for the body to really be one and to experience this unity. And that would be a witness that Jesus is Lord. As he prayed that they would be one, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me. Christ himself ties the spirit-driven unity of the church to the church's witness to the world that he really is Lord. We're selfish because we still have the sinful flesh. We are prone to selfishness. And if we don't walk by the spirit, we're going to lose the experience of the unity that the spirit created. And so, by way of application, we need to pursue unity. We need to take very seriously these words. I'll finish and just and a quote for you. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, 
1 through 6. Huge. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, right? He says, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. He says, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's huge. We have to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's no coincidence that right after this, he says in verse four, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father who is over all and through all and in all. Again, referring to that abiding relationship. That, that's a big deal. You and I, because we still have the flesh, we need to work diligently to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. How do you do this? Don't be selfish. You, me, don't be selfish. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your will. Christ is Lord. Submit to him as Lord. Submit to his will. It's the only will that matters. Think of your differences with other people in the body. Hey, even this local church, someone you might not like, someone you just have an issue with, a difference. Ask yourself, is my issue or problem because of something about my will or the Lord's will? And if it's just your will, drop it and get over it. Live by the Lord's will. Like verse 2 says, you have to be humble and gentle and patient with all. You have to show tolerance for one another in love. Church is going to be filled with lots of different people and different personalities. You leave it to God to set the, the boundaries, right? He says who's in, who's out by his word. Everyone who's in, everyone who confesses Christ as Lord and, and lives up, you know, as a New Testament believer, well, they're in. They're your brother. And uh, any other difference, show some tolerance and love, right? Can, can we err on the side of grace? You're going to need that love for your fellow and brother, uh, fellow brother and sister to overlook differences and, and minor offenses. Can we let that tear the body apart? How, how tragic. It takes work. This takes daily walking by the spirit so as not to give in to the lust of the flesh, the selfishness of the flesh. But I pray you and myself, we would rise to the task as the spirit has come upon you in your salvation, in your baptism. So now walk by the Spirit. That, that's a huge implication. He will lead you to fulfill Christ's desire for the church, which is to be one. One people in one church under one Lord. And that translates into just a powerful witness to a lost world, which is, especially in our country, so divided. So divided. So I pray that would even be our local church's testimony uh, as a local body that people come and see just a, a profound unity and love that these people have for one another. How can this be? And we would say, well, because Christ is Lord. That'll be our answer and our witness. Well, let's pray. Our Lord God, we are grateful for this time in your word and and how it teaches us so much. And we come to salvation and it's been said, we spend the rest of our lives figuring out what happened. What happened to us? What happened to us when we changed? We just knew We were convicted of our sins and we heard about Jesus. We believed in him as Lord. We really believed and then our lives changed. And we, in a way, it's true. We spend the rest of our lives now figuring out what what really happened to us in that moment. 
And tonight we've learned how the Spirit has worked in our lives, baptizing us, immersing us in Christ, uniting us with Christ and how we receive all the benefits of his work, and also immersing us in, in the work of the Spirit, the church, this new community, or new covenant community of believers, reunited to Christ as our head, being Lord, and to one another as well. These are simple in a way, yet deep truths and all they imply. And I pray we take them to heart. We really contemplate and dwell on what you have done in the church. It's not just a building. It's not a Sunday morning experience that we just check off the list. We're in a living body, a family. And I pray we would live that out. We would love this family, sacrifice for this family, draw near to the family. That's how we're going to experience a taste of our even heavenly fellowship to just draw us near to your body, which you love, Lord. You, you died for your church. How can we not love your church? And may we appreciate all that the Spirit has done for us and thereby you know, walk by the Spirit and who will lead us into this unity. So just make these truths real in our heart. Make them precious to us. May we continue to meditate on just the depths of what we've learned in abiding with you, Lord. And may that change how we live as your church for your glory and for our, our witness to the world as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.